There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie! Yeah, we're gonna be a movie! Starring everybody and me! There'll be heroes bold, there'll be comedy, and a lot of fuss that ends for us real happily. And we are going to start right here. Hello and welcome to a Rattledge and Broadcasting Network premiere podcast triple feature. I'm your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And tonight on the marquee are three rock adjacent movies uh the first one is the latest uh horror movie starring the foo fighters studio 666 and then we go back to i think it's 2006 for tenacious d and the pick of destiny starring jack black and then finally uh back even further how far back way way back to yield 1999 for detroit rock city and joining me this evening is Sean Comer. You're not. How do you do, sir? Hey, everybody. This is supposed to be a beer. <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's just straight up Jameson. I forgot to stick a beer in the fridge this afternoon when I was grabbing lunch, so I would have it cold by podcast time. So um, doing things a little out of order. I normally like this to be my my nightcap. It's like, it's like the perfect Irish tuck-in before <laughs> I slip into bed and... Go off to go I'm off to the you, road to rise to meet me in Dreamland. I'm glad you clarified that. I was like, Jesus Christ, was it that kind of a day? I was just like, Oh, Jameson, you're my only friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. My my day usually concludes with a beer followed by some, followed by some Jameson while I'm hanging out with the kid while they're doing art or while we're watching anime or something. Um, but tonight might be winding down a little bit early, so I guess you could say I'm starting about an hour or two earlier than I normally would. It's fair. Well, um, I wanted to review Studio 666, but I think mm-hmm. at the time that it came out, which was actually um, February 25th, uh, it went into wide, wide, <laughs> wide-ish release. <laughs> um, and if I remember correctly, going back and looking at my calendar, February 25th was <clears throat> the same day as uh i okay i remember why i couldn't see it that weekend i was really busy i had a friend in town um my life was being turned mm-hmm. upside down <laughs> had a lot going on that weekend and uh and then like the tuesday that followed i was recording something with jesse for um for star wars or uh, star wars day so uh there was no time to get it on the schedule mm-hmm. is what happened so i said okay well i want to do this let's make it a part of a triple feature when it goes pvod and then i said to Sean, who used to write uh, a music column for 411, I was like, hey, you're very music-oriented. You like the Foo Fighters. I bet you will really, and you like horror movies, like, I bet you'll really enjoy Studio 666. Why don't you pick two more rock-adjacent movies, <laughs> and we'll make a triple feature out of this, and when it goes PBOD, we'll be able to uh, we'll be able to review it. And so he was like, okay. I picked Tenacious mm-hmm. D. I picked Detroit Rock City, and I'm like, I've actually never seen Tenacious D before. Um, mm-hmm. I was never, I was never, like, the world's biggest Jack Black fan. But I did see Detroit Rock City, and I absolutely adore that movie. It is, mm-hmm. it is totes adorms. So that was my first time seeing it all the way through. Was in preparation for this. 
Yes. Uh, okay. Previously, I, previously, I think I had seen about the back half, two fifths of it, something like that. Mm-hmm. But no, that was my <laughs> first time seeing it all the way through from start to finish. All right. Well, let's get into Studio Six Six Six. Let me first ask you: uh, a couple of years ago, I think Melissa and I saw the Foo Fighters in concert. I've always been oh, kind of fifty fifty on the Foo Fighters. Believe, believe it or not. I mean, I don't think they're really? a bad band. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think that 50-50 comes from the fact that I, I'm, I'm kind of a metal snob. So, you know, it, it, in my now mid to late 40s, I'm less of that, and I can appreciate their music for what it is. They're obviously talented musicians. When I saw them live, I really enjoyed them. <clears throat> but at the time, there were two things going on for me when the Foo Fighters were around. One, I was a huge Nirvana mm-hmm. fan. And I never quite got over the uh, murder of Kurt Cobain. And um, and nothing after Nirvana that was Nirvana connected was going to be as good. Now, no matter how good it actually was, it was never going to be, it was never going to mean as much to me as Nirvana's, uh, never mind, and then In Utero did. So when Dave Grohl, who was the drummer for Nirvana, went on to form the Foo Fighters, I was like, it's not Nirvana. It's not the same. In fact, he formed it with Pat Smear, who was who was also in Nirvana at the time, uh, though he did not start off with the band. So, I've always kind of had a tenuous relationship with the Foo Fighters, but lo, these many years later, and I've gotten over the Nirvana thing, and I've gotten over the music snobbery. I've come to appreciate their music, and I really, really enjoy it for mm-hmm. what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a different relationship with the Foo Fighters. What would that be? Well, I was aware of them in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Me was, I think, was the first time I saw them. It was on MTV, and it really didn't register as that big of a deal of a song. A song with me, it was kind of catchy. It had what we'd come to realize would be their trademark, super creative, lighthearted, quirky music video to go along with it. Uh-uh. But it it just didn't grab me. Uh, Color in the Shape came out. And, of course, with that came uh, Monkey Wrench, Everlong, to a much, 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 much lesser extent, uh, Walking After You, which those of you who saw the first X-Files movie, you will probably remember that one more fondly. Um, And then There Is Nothing Left to Lose was the first album that came out after Pat left the band. Um, I seem to recall he infamously announced his departure absolutely out of nowhere uh, following their performance of, I think, Monkey Wrencher Everlong on a on the um, it was either a VMA or an MTV Movie Awards pre-show that year. And I kind of became just a steady fan after that as I realized one album after another, after another, after another that metal snobbery and other perfunctory interests aside, I would defy anyone to point me towards a patently bad Foo Fighters album. And not only that, but they never quite seem to really make the same album twice and then when you really give it a listen you find that in addition to the really top-notch musicianship and arrangements uh dave Grohl is arguably in a really underappreciated 
lyricist as well. And of course, um, <laughs> just backtracking just a short little ways, uh, Monkey Wrench is always going to have a very personal significance to me as a big old, you know, F you and kiss the ring uh, to one to one very particular per person. So I'm always going to kind of headbang and just thrash right along every single solitary time I hear. And do I know this person? Oh, yeah. Moving on. Oh, yeah. Um, last thing I want to say before <laughs> the people who know know. <laughs> yeah. Um, last thing I want to say before we move on to the actual review. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Foo Fighters actually has a very special connection to both Sean and I. Um, low those many years ago when Sean and I decided to do a podcast about movie uh, franchises, uh, we called it Long Road to Ruin, and the song was named after a Foo Fighters song. And for many, many years, and despite copyright law and our flagrant, you know, violation of it. <laughs> <laughs> we use the Foo Fighters Long Road to Ruin theme from the first verse to the first chorus as our opening for uh, the Long Road to Ruin podcast. And I mean, we did it for what, four or five years before uh, we finally oh, decided yeah. I, we couldn't deal with Block Talk Radio anymore and we had to stop. <clears throat> and we, oh, I think you were in a place talk. of also not being able to watch 97 movies for, for a podcast. So like maybe let's let's yeah. do just one movie. We started doing on trial, but um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I now have a different relationship with the Foo Fighters than I used to, and I think uh, I think all in all, Dave Grohl, you know, as far as um, Hollywood rock musicians go, is a um, you know is a fairly decent guy. I think he's well liked in the industry. So um, mm -hmm. let's get into it. Uh, yeah, Studio Six Six Six. It's an American horror comedy film directed by B.J. McDonald and written by Jeff Bueller and Rebecca Hughes, based on a story from Dave Grohl. Grohl stars alongside his Foo Fighter bandmates, Taylor, <coughs> Taylor, <coughs> excuse me, okay. Taylor Hawkins in his. I'm fine. Taylor Hawkins in his final film appearance, Nate Mendel, Pat Schmia, uh, Chris Shiflett, and Rami Jaffe. Uh, Whitney Cummings, very funny comedian, um, also stars Leslie Grossman, Will Forte, Jenny Ortega who uh, was an ex, which we praised earlier this year, and Jeff Garland of Goldberg's fame, co-star for the ensemble cast. In the film, the Foo Fighters move into a mansion to write and record a new album, only to find the house is cursed. Um, all right, so I will quickly read through the plot synopsis here. In 1993, Encino, Sky Willow, drummer of the rock band Dream Widow, is crawling along the floor with a broken leg, followed closely by the band's frontman, Greg Knoll, who is holding a hammer. Sky sees the body of another band member, this had his jaw broken by Greg before Greg drives the hammer through her forehead repeatedly, hits her in the head with it, crushing her skull. Greg then hangs himself from a window like you do. In 2019, the Foo Fighters are pressured by their manager, Jeremy Schill, <laughs> to overcome their writer's block and record a new album. The group move into the mansion where Grohl becomes fascinated with the house as a source of inspiration. One of their techs helps, one of their tech helps Krug is electrocuted by, I swear to God, I thought that was Carrie King from Slayer, by the way. Electrocuted by a wire, and the band decides to dedicate their album to him. Grohl finds a basement containing satanic objects, like you would, and is possessed by Noel's demonic soul after listening to a demo tape. Under the demon's control, Grohl forces the band to continue the production on the album. Later, a delivery man named Darren, who had earlier tried to give Grohl a demo tape, is, de is decapitated outside the manor by an unknown figure with hedge clippers. The next day, as Shiflet is cooking on the grill, the same figure pushes his face into it, Shiflet attempts to escape, but he has his head smashed with the grill cover 
and is stabbed repeatedly in the neck before the figure is revealed to be Dave Grohl. Dun, dun, dun. The band later find Darren's corpse, but Grohl convinces them not to call the police and takes their phones. After watching Grohl eating shiftless remains, the band soon learn of the mansion's backstory and Grohl's possession with the help of a neighbor, Samantha. To exercise, to exercise Grell, they need to find a book needed to free him of the possession as Samantha and Jaffe have sex. They are both killed when Grohl sneaks under the bed and drives a chainsaw through their heads before cutting them in half. Hawkins is pressured by Grohl to finish the song while Mendel and Schmier retrieve the book from the basement. Hawkins finishes the song and is partially decapitated by Grohl with a symbol. Mendel and Schmier free Grohl from the possession <clears throat> and the souls of Dream Widow band members seen, send the demon to hell. However, Jeremy <clears throat> and the real estate developer, Barb Weems, ambush the remaining members, revealing they are planning, they plan the whole thing. While Smear is fixing a car from underneath, Mendel is stabbed in the eye, causing him to accidentally hit the gas, which then runs over Smear's head and runs over Barb. <clears throat> As Mendel gets out of the car to help Barb, she stabs him to the chin and dies alongside him. Grohl battles Jeremy only to back down in horror when Jeremy tells him of the album's success and the start of his solo career. One year later, Grohl, the only Foo Fighter survivor, prepares to perform a solo concert with the marks of possession around his eyes. I have like, two comments about this, and then I'll give it to you to start off the review. One, mm -hmm. at 106 minutes, this was 16 minutes way too long. Um, yikes. Yeah. <clears throat> this needed to be a tight that. 90 or nothing. Well. Um, number one. Number two, it actually felt a lot longer than it really was. Number two, um, whatever BJ Penn... BJ McDonald was going for with this, as was Jeff Bueller and Rebecca Hughes. If they weren't inspired, at least in part, by Sam Raimi, I don't know what they thought they were doing here. Oh, they had been. This yeah. felt like Sam. This felt like a, I had to check to see who the director was. I'm like, are we sure this wasn't Sam Raimi? <laughs> this felt like Evil Dead to me, but with mm. the Foo Fighters. But I'll throw it mm. to you first. What did you think? You know what? If I didn't point out to you that this was made in secret during the pandemic, mm -hmm. you would never know it. Okay. It's for, for what, for what seems like it should amount to the, to the, the Foo Fighters equivalent to kiss saves Chris kiss saves Santa. <laughs> um, this was a pretty damn enjoyable little possession horror movie. Uh, I don't, I don't know about it really being too long because the thing that I liked the most about it is that it does something that my favorite horror movies and stories and shows and whatnot and games all do so well. Take something that's somewhat grounded in reality. That's that's uh, that's somewhat relatable to an extent being a leg to extent that a legendary rock band making their 10th album on a hurried budget and time frame can be relatable to you know, ordinary Joe's like you and I. But take that and then take it a step further into kind of the surreal, the unknown, the unimaginable, but still kind of keep that kind of keep that grounding um and that's why i didn't mind so much that that it was 106 minutes is the fact that so much of that extra time while well i can see where you're coming from i really enjoyed that they that the band 
in character as these fictionalized versions of themselves were able to interact so smoothly and naturally without it ever really all that often feeling overly campy. And I mean, it also, it also helps you got to admit that if they're not all having the absolute time of their lives making this movie, Dave especially, they're doing a great impression of at least having a good time. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's it's not going to go on anybody's, I think, top ten list or any or anything like that. But I think that I think that for what it is, for being a movie that was kind of shot from the sounds of it a little bit by the seat of their pants during a period when the world kind of had no idea what to make of its what to make of itself from one day to the next. This really came out pretty well, surprisingly, surprisingly polished, and really with very little that I could complain about. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I, I, it comes on so fast, I don't have time to mute my mic. Um, I gotcha. So, I don't hate this movie. It it felt a little slow in parts, and it felt a little overlong. Like I I think another pass through editing, and it's this is why I say like a tight ninety minutes, and I think you you really got something here. I mean, at its current length, it just feels in places like a little overindulgent. But okay, tell me tell me which places. I'm curious. Um, it feels like the setup goes on a little too long. There are. And then then the the very end, like, I'm not entirely sure we needed all that stuff with Jeff Garland and uh, Barbara Weebs uh, at the end. Um, I think there was a faster way to get there. Um, I think think it gets dragged out in parts. I think, uh, like I said, shave shave a minute here or there in some of the, the kill scenes and some of the exposition. Uh, and I just think it's, it's a tighter, faster paced movie, because here's the thing. I think this movie is that is at its best when things are, things are happening. Things are moving when mm-hmm. it gets, it gets a little mm-hmm. dragged down in places with some of the exposition. Um, and that takes away from the fun of the movie for me, because here's some positive things I really like about it. Dave Grohl's great in this. Dave oh, Grohl is really yeah. like Dave Grohl is really hamming it up and he is, Oh, he's devouring scenery. Yeah. That. He's acting yeah. for the camera and mm-hmm. he knows it. And it's great because this is such an over-the-top idea. Band moves into the house. House possesses lead singer. Lead singer kills everybody. Mm-hmm. That's a solid premise. Mm-hmm. And now all you have to do is provide a sufficient amount of you know gore and kills and some funny dialogue here and there, and you've got yourself a winner. So I think, like I said, <clears throat> I think it's a good attempt here. I think there's a lot here to have fun with. I was entertained for the most part. I, it's just my only criticism is, like as I've already said, it just needed another pass through editing. Um, my favorite kill in this is the chainsaw scene with Jaffe and Whitney. Oh Cummings. yeah, yeah, <laughs> that is the only right answer to best kill in the movie. Yeah, the chainsaw coming up and cutting them both in half mid coitus. <laughs> it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of it, I mean. It comes off as like campy and over the top. That's why, like, it had that, like, especially the first Evil Dead, it has that very Evil Dead sensibility to it. Mm-hmm. To where, mm-hmm. like, the people making it love horror, 
but they like it better when the horror is over the top and not, you know, there's two kinds of horror. There's this and there's Nightmare on Elm Street. And like this, this is horror in the sense that it's gory and that <clears throat> it follows, you know, strict horror tropes as far as <clears throat> monster, <clears throat> monster kills a bunch of victims. Mm-hmm. But it's not scary in the sense that like Nightmare on Elm Street is scary. This isn't this is not a psychological torture fest you know this is this is a a slasher essentially you know we're maybe nightmare on elm street was a slasher too but nightmare on elm street really played on your psychology it went out of its way to frighten you um you know and make you i was actually talking to my my kids today about the nature of horror because i'm an expert (laughs) and um and I said, you know, the idea behind horror is to make you uncomfortable with what it is you're watching. You know, mm-hmm. it's to, to play on your worst fears and anxieties and put them before you and have that be the, you know, it's not mm-hmm. just the kill. It's the the idea that this could happen to you and that you would not be able to stop it. And I gave the example of A Nightmare on Elm Street because, like, what if you found out that, you know, you're in the middle of a nightmare, there was a monster trying to kill you and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't stop it. No, and if you succeed, you'll really die in real life. What a horrible, horrible thing to think about. Well, and then you go and tell Lily and Jonas that Wes was inspired by an actual phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? That was ha- that was yeah, that was happening among Southeast a- among Southeast Asian immigrants, right? So where like this, I mean, is entirely possible a demon will possess you and you'll kill all your bandmates? Maybe, but it's so over the top and silly. It's not. It doesn't rise to the level of psychological horror that something like a nightmare on Elm Street does. So, mm-hmm. um, but all in all, like I was thinking about what I was going to say about this movie, and <clears throat> it's a tall ask to get the band members who are not actors to play, you know, play it straight enough on screen and be able to carry, you know, say their dialogue believably, believably, and mm-hmm. be able to, you know, put on a performance. I think leaning into the camp helps. Well, I mean. Taylor Hawkins refused to learn the script. Mm-hmm. He improvised all of his lines. He he, he just didn't bother. That that's that gotta really just, frustrate the sound editor. Like that I'm was all, that was all just Taylor, just off the cuff. Well, yeah. Again, you, you know, you have sound. You have, the reason why you have a script is because you have to match things up with the sound. <clears throat> and when you're you're just doing nothing but ad libbing, you're making the craft people who have to do that sort of thing their lives a lot more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah, it's it's something that, in a way, I kind of have to give credit to Taylor, because mm-hmm. among actors, it's something that if you have the right actor and the right director, and I think the right writer, you can get away with it. Uh, notoriously on Scrubs, from what I understand, uh, Neil Flynn, who played the janitor, was never given actual lines he was just kind of basically told whatever you want to do. And then, and then on the other hand, opposite side of the coin, um, early in his career, uh, Kevin Smith would get very frustrated trying to work with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon mm-hmm. because they're not only actors, but they're writers. And they always wanted to wedge in their own, their own little improvs. Yeah. And he and so he was always, always pushing back on that. Uh, Jason and I talked about bamboozled during um, our discussion of um, 
Spike Lee movies for Black History mm -hmm. Month. And I always and I like to cite the story because it's a great example of what it is, you know, the art of directing and what it is you what it is to be a director. So you have Damon Wayans, who's a very talented actor, very talented comedian, very mm -hmm. funny fellow. Mm -hmm. And um, he's given his character in the movie Bamboozled. And he wants to do it a certain way. He wants to do it with a particular accent. And he's like, it'll be funny if I do it like this. And Spike Lee's like, no, Damon, no. <laughs> like, that's not necessary. Do it this way, not that way. And yet, you're a you're a you're an 80s and 90s obscure action movie connoisseur of sorts. Sure. Um, surviving the game. I You've remember it. Oh, yeah, but I see. Okay. So when I mention Gary Busey and the story of Prince Henry Stout, mm -hmm. you know which moment I'm talking about, right? I vaguely remember, yeah. Okay, Busey improv it. Did he really? He went, uh, years ago, I read that he went to the director and mm -hmm. just flat out asked him, said the scene feels like it needs something, would you mind if I just ran with it and improv Right. I mean, a lot can come from um, it. <clears throat> A lot, a lot can come from collaboration and improvisation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes, like Paul Feig, with a lot of the Melissa McCarthy movies, will sometimes just point, point the camera <clears throat> and let, like, Nancy McKinney and Melissa McCarthy just riff. Because you never know, you know, there you can be a very strict, like, constructionist director, like, no, do this, not that, say the lines, do your blocking, get the hell out of the shot. Of of all people, wasn't Brando notorious for driving a lot of directors nuts? Yeah, because because he insisted on improving, right? And and because you never, because again, and and I've said this about like, you know, you don't want too many yes people around you, like George Lucas. Mm -hmm. Um, the the art of collaboration, you never know what what gold you're gonna find when people start spitballing different ideas, things you might not have ever heard of, and so. I think there's a case to be made for it. Just do what's in the script, you idiot, and like say your lines. But I think there's also a case that can be made for letting the actors stretch and breathe and see what they come up with. Um, that being said, bringing this back to Studio 666, mm -hmm. there's some really fun and interesting, almost like uh, Three Stooges, kind of Marx Brothers, kind of uh, innocent, almost innocent kind of comedy. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I had a very like Laurel and Hardy kind of thing. Like there's like sneaking through the house and stuff. And then you would have the these moments of uproarious violence, you know, mm -hmm. just like what, you know, like we, we have a budget. We're a major motion picture. What kind of kills are we going to do that are going to make people gross but laugh at the same time? The whole sequence with Pat and Nate mm -hmm. sneaking around to retrieve the book. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, anything yeah. else about Studio 666? Because I honestly don't have that much to say. Uh, not really all that much. Again, it is shockingly fun. Um, I think it I think it works because nothing you could write for this mm -hmm. band that at this point had known each other for as long as they as they had been down as many up and as many up and down as many roads as they had together. Mm -hmm. was going to ever top just giving them a rough idea of where you were going and just letting them mostly just be them just be themselves because how are you how are you going to know any of these guys be inside their heads right. well enough to know what they would say 
what they would say to each other, what their rapport would be, would be, you know, with the, with each other, even in this like dark, fantastical setting. Um, frankly, I think Taylor might've been the one rest his soul that kind of had, that kind of had the right idea. And while on paper, yeah, it sounds, it sounds a little iffy, the idea of, Oh, ha ha ha. Somebody, somebody gave the Foo Fighters a budget and told them to make a movie. Just trust, trust on this. After seeing this, I kind of want to see Dave Grohl in some more horror movies. I'd like to see Dave Grohl in something. Oh yeah. Um, all right. So let's go ahead and move on to uh, the next feature here. And before we do, let me ask you. So you picked Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. Hey, look, something else with Dave Grohl in it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so I don't know that much about Tenacious D. Um, Tenacious D was a comedy rock duo formed in Los Angeles. It was founded by actors Jack Black and... Um, Kyle, Kyle Gass, who then went on to do this movie. And, you know, it's sort of a, I'll talk about what it is in just a second. But <coughs> did you um, did you follow Tenacious D? Did you pay attention to what was going on with them? Like, is that part of why you picked this? I paid enough attention. Well, the reason I picked it was twofold. Um, number one, this was Dave Grohl's second time playing the devil in a Tenacious D project. <laughs> oh, he's the devil in this? Yeah. Oh, okay, that's really funny. Actually, uh, the the other being um, in the music video for tribute, and the other reason being, yeah, I'm a Tenacious D fan from way back, uh, long enough that I can tell you this movie is, for all intents and purposes, a crude stoner yellow submarine. Mm -hmm. In that, if especially if you really love their first album. Uh, you can see the little Easter eggs and nods to it just at just everywhere. And you kind of just can't help but kind of smirk a little bit at um, how it's almost like they took that they took that album and just and just kind of dramatized <laughs> uh, bits and pieces of it just just into into like a rock opera. Yeah. Um, all right. So I uh, I didn't pay too much attention to Tenacious D. In fact, when you pick this, I kind of like, you know, I, I will always I mean, don't don't read this the wrong way. I will always whenever you pitch something to me, be like, absolutely. Let's do it. I'm excited to do this. But there was definitely a, like a moment of like, Ugh, really, because <laughs> like, gosh, I've avoided this my whole life and now I got to deal with it. Um, but I'm not, but I'm not unhappy that I watched it. Like I said, I, I've not I. Jack Black was one of those comedians where uh, I I didn't I didn't pay a tremendous amount of attention with attention to him when he was in Tenacious D when he was on the come up with like School of Rock and all you know and a lot of like the mm -hmm. Jack Black <clears throat> like I like we talked about him in High Fidelity and I was aware of him in that and I mm -hmm. and I saw School of Rock which is an adorable movie but I, like a lot of like the Jack Black solo stuff when he was on the come up I was like. You know, like Nacho Libre is something I've never seen. You know, a lot of... I don't think I've ever seen that all the way through. There is definitely an element of, like, Fat Guy Who Falls Down doesn't really appeal to me. It's the same... Like, I have a friend of mine who thinks, like, the funniest movie she's ever seen is Tommy Boy. I, I, I get... 
the appeal of Chris Farley, but a fat guy who falls down doesn't really appeal to me. And it's like, it's one of those things where like, I get that it appeals to a lot of people that lowbrow humor, that humor you don't have to think about, you know, the, the lowest hanging dangling fruit. I, I well, really I, do I, understand the psychology of it, but it doesn't I, appeal to me. I, I get it, but here's, here's where I think the difference lies. Um, I get where you're coming from. And it's very much the reason why, no, I've never been real big on the Chris Farley was a comedic genius hype train. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if anything, when I was when I was a kid, I was fortunate enough to grow up with. Um, oh, did we lose Mark for a moment? Okay. Nope. I no. Keep going. Occasionally, I'm going to shut my mic and camera off so that I can cough without coughing into the microphone. Oh. Oh. Okay. Sure. Thank you. Uh, anyway, I was fortunate enough to grow up with a dad who himself had grown up with classic Saturday Night Live. And so I got no shortage of exposure to the true genius that was John Belushi. Mm -hmm. Now, what they have in common is, yes, they were both portlier fellows who had their vices. Yes, they both excelled in um, physical comedy. Uh, however, I always kind of differentiated between them because I think Belushi is how a lot of people through rose colored glasses like to envision Farley. Yeah. But the difference being Belushi could actually create a character. I think also Belushi had a perspective with his yes. comedy. He yes, had a perspective. He, he, he had a, he was, he was making a point about things and I, and I know that's hard to believe especially if like, you watch Animal House and you're like, he's the guy that does the zip thing. But, um, you know, <laughs> but I, I really do believe that a lot of the guys that came out of the 70s had a monkey on their back and had something to say. Mm -hmm. uh, so like the priors of that era, you know, um, mm -hmm. Bill Murray's, Dan Aykroyd's, the, you know, um, uh, Red Fox, who's mm -hmm. a, a generation before that, but well-known in the 70s, Carol Burnett, you know, that whole, like, golden age of comedy in the 70s, I think those were more so than I think in any other era of comedy were, like, if they did not have a stage in which to do comedy, they would be on the street corner yelling at people. Like, they had something True. to say True. about the way the world was going at the time. They weren't True. just there to tell jokes. And I think that's what people don't realize about Jim Belushi, um, John Belushi. John Belushi. Mm -hmm. is that John Belushi, yes, was you know a fat guy who fell down, but John Belushi had some demons he was wrestling with, and he needed, and he needed to talk about things. Um, but as I said last night in the corner review, I don't think we always want to hear the serious stuff. It's well, just, yeah, exactly. You know, you know like but just just do Animal House. Don't don't tell me about what you think what you think about what's going on in the world. True, but here's where I kind of differentiate a little bit, and where I come back to Jack Black. Mm -hmm. is I don't so much write him off as being Farley-like. Yeah. Because is the knack for physical comedy there? Oh, yes. Absolutely. In spades. Mm -hmm. Is the high energy Is the high energy there? Oh, he is, he is so often in fifth gear or higher, just all the time. But you can also see sometimes how he's a talented actor. And there's a certain kind of warmth that there's capable of being 
of being about him and a, and a creativity that kind of molds all that kind of molds all that energy and kind of directs it um in and that's why i compare him so much to belushi is he may not necessarily always have so much to say but if you ever see him when he's kind of out of character when he's not in kind of that role kind of like he was in this or orange county or 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 yeah or or even or even high fidelity there's there's a kind of intelligence behind his eyes and then the old saying kind of goes um it takes her it takes a really smart person to be really great at playing dumb (laughs) and you kind of see him in anything else and then you see his work with tenacious d and in this movie and you kind of appreciate that much more yeah just how effectively he's able to kind of be this this sort of lovable gung-ho dumb shit <laughs> can i tell you i was very excited about it when it first starts and it breaks into a musical i was super excited i'm like ooh, this is a rock opera <clears throat> i have no idea i was like thank god like oh my god i think this is gonna be like a stupid comedy it's gonna be something else mm-hmm. it'll be slightly elevated it'll be a rock opera like that takes some talent i'm really curious oh it stops immediately i was, I was <laughs> I was like, hi, hi, low, low. And then, and then I was back to, damn you, Sean. Um, so, um, but I, I'll tell but you. the loaf! Right there! <laughs> top of the, the yeah, top of the I, whole thing. Act one, scene one. The loaf! <laughs> I, uh, I have to say, and we'll get into what this movie is in a second, but despite myself and despite, like, it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be, I still had a lot of fun with this movie, and I can see mm. why it's developed cult classic status. Why you picked it, I think. I think it's worth you know a ten to twenty minute conversation. So let's get into it. Uh, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny is a 2006 American musical fantasy comedy film about a comedy rock duo, Tenacious D, written, produced, and starring Tenacious D members Jack Black and Kyle Gass. It is directed and co-written by musician and puppeteer Liam Lynch. Despite being about an actual band, the film is a fictitious story set in the 1990s about the band's origin and. <clears throat> And they continued in their journey to find the pick belonging to Satan that allows its users to become rock legends. The film was released November 22nd, 2006. It was a box office bomb. The soundtrack, The Pick of Destiny, was also released in 2006 in the band's second studio album. Despite the poor box office reception that the film released, it has since been considered a cult classic. Yeah, this had a $20 million budget. It barely made $14 million. So um, getting into it, a young man, JB, who is Jack Black, runs away from his religious family an oppressive midwestern town it was like <laughs> the whole beginning of this movie just reminded me of like a twisted sister video <laughs> what do you want to do with your life i want to rock <laughs> <laughs> wily coyotes out the window um midwestern town of hollywood after being graced by the word of dio on a quest <laughs> to form the world's most awesome rock band there he meets acoustic guitarist kg kyle gas <sighs> The gate came to his performing on the street and begins worshiping him as a rock god because his perceived skills and attitude. JB attempts to ask KG to teach him to rock and roll, teach him rock and roll lessons only to be refused. Later in the night, a crestfallen JB mopes on a park bench seconds before being beaten up. KG takes pity on JB and agrees to teach him. KG feeds JB's fantasy by pretending to be a famous, be famous with the self-named band, the Kyle Gas Project. 
and exploits him to do work such as cleaning his apartment and buying him weed. Uh, after JP learns KG is actually unemployed and living off his parents, the two become equal, and KG apologizes to JB by giving him a brand new guitar. They create their own band, Tenacious D, named after matching birthmarks found on their buttocks. How convenient. <laughs> soon, KB, soon JB and KG learn the deepest secret of rock. All the rock legends use the same guitar pick, the Pick of Destiny, which has supernatural powers. It was created by a dark wizard who'd summoned Satan for his own purposes, but was promptly attacked. A nearby blacksmith heard the commotion and distracted the demon by tossing a horseshoe at it, chipping its tooth in the process. As Satan was now incomplete, the wizard was able to banish Satan back to hell. To... I wonder if these guys play D&D. <laughs> to repay the blacksmith who desired the heart of a fair maiden, the wizard fashioned the tooth into a pick that would give its holder unnatural prowess with, string, with stringed instruments. Infatuated by the prospect of becoming the next great rock star, JB immediately sets tenaciously on a quest to steal the pick of destiny from a rock history museum. Along the way, the band briefly splits up when KG decides that sex comes first and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. After getting invited to a party by a young woman, while well, JB wants to stick to the mission at hand, they are eventually reunited after KG is kicked out of the party. Later, the two manage to steal the pick of destiny from the rock museum. Armed with its supernatural pick, they plan to use the winnings from a local bar's talent contest to pay their rent. Before, before they can go on stage, they argue over who gets to use the pick first, snapping it in half accidentally. The bar's owners persuade them to go to onto the contest without the pick. The owner is revealed to be Satan in human form, who places the pick of destiny on his broken tooth. Complete again, he obtains supernatural powers on Earth and threatens to make Tenacious D his first victims. To save their lives, Tenacious D challenged Satan to a rock-off, which under the terms of the demon code, he cannot decline. That would be the devil went down to Georgia, everybody. It's apparently the most influential thing in the history of music. The terms suggested by JB are that if Tenacious D win... Satan must return to hell and pay their rent. But if they lose, Satan can take KG back with him as a sex slave, like you do. After the duel, Satan deems his rock better and attempts to shoot KG with a bolt of energy. JB jumps in the way and the bolt bounces off the bridge of his guitar, blowing off a piece of Satan's horn. As Satan is now incomplete once again, JB sends him to hell with the wizard's magical incantation. The two turn Satan's horn into the bong of destiny. <laughs> Which it's the two smoke from from as they write new songs. So two things I want to talk about with this. We had a conversation, uh, my friends um, in the in our group chat and I about mm. um, where has the nudie cutie gone? Where has the uh, the eighty sex romp gone? Um, you know the the hot dog, the movie, the hamburger, the movie, Porky's. You know where where have where have we gone? in terms of like comedies that were like straight up like damn near fucking porn and the point that was made and i thought it was an interesting one was it got taken over by the drug comedy by you know by by the pot comedy and so i, I think about like tenacious d and i think it's a really good example of like the evolution of the of lowbrow comedy in that um the I mean, it's so it's so focused on on like um, it, I think it, that kind of ignores the inarguable fact that, you know, the world got about a solid five to ten year revival of the teen sex comedy. Um, and 
the problem is for every American pie, you got five direct-to-video American Pie sequels. Um, for every Van Wilder, you got three or four Van Wilder, The Rise of Tajes. I mean, it, and it got to the point where the returns diminished so much that it kind of went the way of that 90s swing revival mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where, where we sat back, we had a few jollies with a few with a few throwbacks, and then we kind of realized, golly gee, at least 70% of this stuff sucks. <laughs> so, totally funny, actually. And I mean, um, well, as, and as, far as, the, as far as the drug movies go, uh, again, another one where we got some good ones, but I think that the difference being is, or the weird difference being is, you would think that if anything would have overtaken anything, the teen sex comedies would have overtaken the drug comedies mm-hmm. because the teen sex comedies had broader appeal and arguably launched more careers. Um, when you think about kind of the brief blow up of the likes of Jason Biggs, Sean William Scott, Shannon Elizabeth, Mina Suvari, um, fucking Allison Hannigan, um, Van Wilder unleashed Ryan Reynolds on an unsuspecting and I would argue unworthy world. Um, There was Michelle Trachtenberg and Road Trip, list goes on and on. Yeah. But whereas on the other hand, when it comes to drug movies... You're talking about movies that studios know are going to appeal to a very specific audience. Um, Whereas you're going to have people who are going to watch, who are going to watch the screwball antics and yeah, they're maybe going to be amused, but they're not going to be nearly enamored with it as the people who are clearly kind of, in on the joke shall we uh, shall we say mm-hmm. um so yeah that that's why movies like half baked harold and kumar tenacious d in the pick of destiny how dazed high used yeah dazed dazed and confused um no they're not going to find real mainstream audiences because in my opinion an american pie you know, you could be a teenager in the late 90s who could mm-hmm. watch that and kind of find an appeal all its own because it's very much of its time. And then, it, but then again, on the other hand, you're also bound to find adults who, like you said, they, they grew up with Porky's, Animal House, Hot Dog the, Hot Dog the Movie, what have you. And they're going to look at it and they're going to maybe get a bit wistful and nostalgic for the heyday for the heyday of National Lampoon. And they're just kind of and they're just kind of kind of kind of enjoy feeling like, huh, someone in this day and age does get me. You know, so someone still appreciates the classics. So so tenacious D in the pick of destiny. 
<clears throat> I think if you're a music fan, and I, I think it's a it's fitting uh, as this trio of movies that we're looking at tonight, in the sense of each one of these, in its own way, <clears throat> incorporates some of the the tropes and uh, funny stuff about the quirkiness of the rock and roll industry. Mm -hmm. um, less less so, Studio Six Six Six, but some of it's there. You know, like the, the stuff towards the end with Jeff Garland, where it's just like, we had to do this. You know, rock and roll essentially needs an infusion of new blood. So we have to sacrifice like that sort of thing. Um, like there, there was definitely, and we didn't talk about this in that review, but there was definitely some editorializing about this is some of the misgivings about the rock and roll industry. And there's a lot of jokes in the dialogue about that. Tenacious mm -hmm. D in the Pick of Destiny definitely like deals, I think, more with the quirkiness of musicians. Um, there's always a guy, and it's in this case it's Kyle Gass, who, you know, he he thinks he's better than everybody else, and you know, and he has to like gaslight people and lie, and um, it's a cover for the fact that he's yet another in a long litany of musicians that tried their best, but you know, couldn't get their shit together, and you know, I can I can tell you, guys like that are mm -hmm. all the fuck over Phoenix. <laughs> Oh, so, God, it's like a roach infestation. <laughs> I think, I, you know, obviously Kyle Gass and Jack Black as comedian and, and observers looked at the world around them and were like, that's funny, that's funny, that's stupid, that needs to be mercilessly made fun of. And they kind of like took all of these observations and ideas and made a screenplay out of it. So that's the mm. fun of Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny. Um, they looked at like some of like the D&D stuff that gets associated with uh heavy metal especially like in the 80s um you know like the uh the fantasy aspect of heavy metal that go hand in hand with it and they were like that's fun yeah. we should talk about that that's maybe let's make that the premise of this movie because you know the whole idea of chasing after a magical item to make your to make your band awesome and challenging satan like that's <laughs> you you could have done a role playing campaign of that you know what I mean? Like you send your you send your your role players on a quest to go find a magical item so they can you know and then they have to defeat the bad guy. Only it's a rock opera, <laughs> you know. So there's some fun with that. Um, I think you know I'm not surprised. I, it's funny. I, I was reading about some of the background on this movie, and Jack Black was like like disappointed people didn't go see it based mm -hmm. on I guess the band's popularity, but like. This has a very niche aesthetic to it that's not going to appeal to a general audience. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where, like, I think if you could show it to people, like, people come over and, like, hang out, you could show it to them and people will laugh at it. But no one's oh, going to yeah. shoot this movie yeah. down. Like, I have to watch it. It's way too niche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. Because it's uh, it's so, so true. Because, I mean, Tenacious D is like the multiverse version of what if Flight of the Concords were a couple of massive metalheads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's I, I won't even make the Cheech and Chong comparison because I don't think that's very apt. But Flight of the Concords, on the other hand, I mean, it, it's even they even kind of were at the height of their power kind of right around kind of right around the same time. Um I mean, it, it, it's the same fate that kind of befell um, another one of my favorite comedy songwriting duos, Garfunkel and Oates. Um, you know, if if you know them, if you're familiar with them, yeah, 
they're they're fucking they're fucking hilarious and you will eat up with with the biggest spoon you can find anything they put forth but if you're not really hip to it again like i like i said at the top you're going to miss a lot of the a lot of the jokes like lee two kings cock push-ups <laughs> um the fact that the entire final battle with satan might as well be a reenaction a reenactment of the song tribute right down to the fact that they don't even know, remember how the best song in the world goes um the fact that Dave fucking Grohl again, like I said in the in the video for tribute, he was the devil. Um, you know, again, I could go, I could go on and on with this shit, but um, I get Jack being disappointed because this was also the movie kind of coming out when he was really at the height of his power, and so when you've made so many projects that have made so much bank and have made and have kind of struck so many reviews and here you kind of get to make your passion project what's really you um instead of having it being received as as your abbey road um congratulations this is your head mm -hmm. so those who get those who get those who get the monkeys get the reference. So, all right. Um, I think the only other thing I want to say about Canisius D and the Pick of Destiny is oh, one thing that's always like irritated me about Jack Black mm -hmm. is you know it is the over the top stuff. Like I love always. I've said this about Jim yeah. Carrey and a lot of different comedians. Um, I always prefer the more subtle, more dramatic performances to the over-the-top, wide-eyed, crazy man stuff that they do. So um, so you were so you weren't really feeling John C. Riley playing Jack Black's uh, Sasquatch dad. <laughs> it's mildly amusing. And their and their and their magical and their magical float trip down mm. the strawberry river. But I uh but I have to say I'll, I'll give Jack Black some credit where credit's due here. I think the movie called from a bit for a bit of you know, throwing yourself into the scenery and whatnot. So um, I think here it works. Um, I think it's one of the things that actually carries the picture because Kyle Gass, while he may be a talented musician, and I don't know how much of his comedy, I, I, I can't judge his comedy outside of this movie. I, I couldn't think, tell you one other thing he's done. Yeah, I, I feel like if Jack Black's not working, none of this movie works. So like like he he kind of has to be up for a lot of these scenes and you know and and really push himself and so it's a lot of fun. Um, all right, let's move on to Detroit Rock City. So you're a big Kiss fan? Not really. Um, I can I can appreciate them. I get why I get why people like them. The music's not bad. It's just number one, not really not really my thing and number two i can stand about maybe two or three sentences of gene simmons with his mouth open <laughs> okay because gene because gene simmons is the fucking hulk hogan of metal yeah, yeah. um so uh we did a metal hammer review i think like our like new year's show or something i can't remember where exactly in the timeline it was it was either like post new year's or pre-new year's stuff and um 
and uh, he he did like like the post makeup uh, album, which was fun. Um, but uh, I've seen Kiss live, and I've seen him with the makeup, and that. yeah, um, Kiss is a fun show. Kiss is re- Kiss is really like an experience, uh, and I and I've always enjoyed their music. I mean, you know, it's it's good old fashioned solid hard rock, um, and. Uh, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, they, they're not one of my favorite bands, but when Detroit Rock City came out, I was really interested in the movie. I was also curious to see like what what Edward Furlong was going to do after. I don't remember if this was before or after the one pro movie that we talked about that he did, but this was definitely after his Terminator Two feature, and I was mildly interested in seeing what Edward Furlong would do to pull his career out of the tailspin that it was in. So um, between the music. And like the whole idea of like, here's a movie about four kids trying to get a, get to a Kiss concert. Like it had that like, I know it precedes it, but it had that Harold and Kumar go to White Castle kind of feel to it. It's like you know, it's a one you know one night uh, adventure with these three mm-hmm. schlubs, uh, four schlubs. Let's see, let's see, <clears throat> let's see what sort of shenanigans they get into. Mm-hmm. And it's a tight little script. I, I know, like, it's not got great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. People struggled with this, and then it, it also was a box office bomb. But uh, I think it's a cute little picture, you know. I loved it. I, yeah, I loved it. I would. It was close, but I would even say it edges out. Studio Six 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 is my favorite of the three this week. I mean, how that works out, you know. Sometimes, like whatever, uh, it's a uh, whatever we decide we're going to do. Like the thing that anchors the, the podcast, like yeah, that's not the best. And then like whatever the last thing we talk about is, like this finally. <laughs> here <laughs> amazing um all right so detroit rock city is a 1999 american teen comedy film directed by adam rifkin and written by carl v dupree it tells the four teenage boys in the kiss tribute band to try to see their idols in concert in detroit in 1978 comparable with other rock films such as rock and roll high school days and confused and i want to hold your hand it's a coming of age story through a filter of 1970s music and culture in the united states it took its title from kiss from the kiss song of the same name um, all right, so yeah, at a seventeen million dollar budget, it made five point eight million dollars. Nobody went to go see this thing. <laughs> um, in nineteen seventy eight, Cleveland, Ohio, four rebellious teenage boys, Hawk, Lex, Trip, Verudi, and Jeremiah Jam Bruce, planned a Kiss tribute band called Mystery and prepared to see their idols in concert in Detroit the following night. Their hopes are dashed when Jam's religiously conservative mother finds the concert tickets and burns them before having Jam transferred to a Catholic boarding school. Trip manages to win tickets and backstage passes from a radio contest in Detroit, and the boys plan to rescue Jam from the boarding school. Disguised as pizza delivery boys, they drug Father and Philip McNulty using a pizza topped with hallucinogenic mushrooms and set off with Jam for Detroit and Lex's mother's Volvo to pick up tickets. While on the highway, <laughs> they get into a road rage incident with disco fanatics Kenny and Bobby after Trip accidentally threw a slice of pizza on their windshield. Oh, they did the fag makeup to me. Oh, not the fag makeup. Um, Sorry, I love that line. They beat up the disco duo and continue their journey before picking up Christine, uh, who walked out on Kenny due to his behavior. Upon arrival, so, by the way, the um, it's Edward Furlong who plays Hawk, Sam Huntington who plays Jeremiah, Giuseppe Andrews is Lex, James DeBello is Trip for Verdu, who does not even have a Wikipedia link, Lynn Shea is Mrs. Bruce Manley, Linsky is Beth um, Bumstein, and Natasha Leone, and this is the whole reason I wanted to read this, Natasha Leone of Orange is the New Black fame uh, as Christine, and we have a special appearance by Shannon Tweed and Ron Jeremy. Anyway. Yep. Um, 
Uh, okay. Upon their arrival in Detroit, the boys discover the trip did not stay on the phone long enough to give the radio station this information, resulting in the tickets being given to the next caller. When they exit the building, they find the Volvo missing, which they just deduce was stolen by Christine. After a brief argument amongst themselves, the four split up and find Kiss tickets and the Volvo. Planning to meet up in an hour and 45 minutes, Hawk finds Scalper, who suggests he enter a mail stripping contest to raise money for tickets. He gets drunk and loses the contest after vomiting but is offered payment for the company and has sex with an older woman named Amanda Finch. After being paid, he locates the scalper only to find out that he needs that his tickets are sold out. Trip goes to a local convenience store in the hopes of mugging a younger child for his ticket, but is confronted by the boy's older brother, Chongo, and his friends who threaten him for $200. He then plans to rob the store with Stretch Armstrong, a doll disguised as a gun, but ends up thwarting a genuine robbery attempt and is rewarded $150. Trip gives the money to Chongo's gang, but they beat him up anyway and steal his wallet in the process. Lex sneaks backstage with the concert loading crew, but is caught and tossed over a fence. When he encounters a group of vicious dogs, he wins them over with a Frisbee, then saves Christine and the Volvo from the two car thieves who were responsible for stealing the car at a nearby chop shop. Jam encounters an anti-kiss rally and is spotted by his mother, who forcibly takes his drumstick. She drags him to a nearby church for confessional with a perverted priest who is more interested in salacious conversation rather than an actual confession. He is then greeted by Beth Bumstein, a classmate who is in the process of moving to Ann Arbor. After admitting their feelings for each other, they have sex before parting ways, but agreeing to stay in contact with each other, Jam, imbued with new confidence, goes back to the rally and angrily berates his mother for her domineering ways and her hypocrisy, telling her extreme religious views and controlling attitude have done nothing but cause him to despise religion and rebel. He ultimately breaks her spirit by telling her that she is a lousy mother, proclaiming to her and her rally that he lost his virginity in a confessional booth. He then demands his drumstick back, one of which he broke in half. She does so and apologizes to him, remarking to the crowd that they grow up fast. When the boys meet up empty-handed, Jam suggests they should beat each other up to make it appear that they had been mugged for their tickets. Upon arriving at Cobol Hall, the guards are skeptical until Trip points out Tongo's gang, who are just entering, are the culprits who assaulted them. When the guards search them, they find Trip's wallet with Kiss, Army, Picture, and ID, and money. They confiscate Chongo's tickets and give them to the boys. Chongo, along with his little brother and his friends, are then escorted out of the concert. Shocked and delighted, they enter the concert hall and Kiss play the film's title song. As it ends, Peter Chris throws a drumstick and jam catches with, with joy and excitement. I love this movie. I really do. Um, I think it's a tight little script. You know, it's we we establish our characters. Jam, um, jam is sort of our sympathy character, but you know, I think all three guys, even though Trip is the worst, have a charm about them. You want them to get to this Kiss concert, if nothing else. And each one of them kind of goes on a journey of like self discovery. Um, you have Jam, who finds his courage and confronts his mother, who is overly religious. Uh, you have this Giuseppe Andrews character who, um, he, he has the least journey to go on, but he, he has some interesting stuff happen to him with where like at one point when they pick up Natasha Leone, um, and they you know, and jam is trying to be like the sensitive guy to her. He's like, stop, just like, stop trying to impress this girl. And he has a thing about dogs and he conquers his dog fear. He gets his mom's car back and he wins the girl. Good for him. Um, then you have Hawk who has stage fright and he overcomes the stage fright by stripping and then banging Shannon Tweed, which would cure my stage fright and a lot of other social issues I have. Um, I get to bang Shannon Tweed. And then Trip for Rudy is a scumbag and he's less of a scumbag by the end of the movie. Mm. So um, they all, you know, they all go on an adventure. They all, they have some really fun sequences. There's some great music in this movie. 
all in all, like it's a shame it's not as pop, it's not more popular. And I just wonder if it's a timing thing. Like, yes, Kiss is the most popular band in the world and the most merchandise band in the world, but I don't know how in how much in 1999 this movie resonates with the kind of crowd that it was aimed towards. Um, and I think even now, I'll be curious to see like who listens to this review and has comments on it because again, I don't know how much Kiss resonates with the average person in 2022. But uh, back in 1999, when I saw it. I, I really did genuinely enjoy the performances. I enjoyed there's some great <laughs> you and what army? The Kiss Army. Um, stuff like that, you know, the Tisk Tisk. I really had high hopes for you. Um, <laughs> the obvious commentary about you know religion with the two different situations with, with terrible priests, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's all it was all fun stuff. So what did you think of the movie? Came out about 20 years too late this comes out this comes out in the 70s i think it's an all-time classic yeah i I agree absolutely but then again by the same token i think in the 20s it doesn't come out it's not made with quite the same wistful reminiscence quite the same fondness and hindsight Mm -hmm. as this is. And it's, and it doesn't become quite the love letter to a decade that was just coming to an end. And let's face it, a pretty damn ugly and tumultuous Mm -hmm. decade. Um, I mean, all the ugly, all the ugly shit, we just kind of glossed over in the credits. Um, you know, back then, this comes out in 1979. Um, that becomes a real downer, <laughs> probably right, yeah. probably right, damn quick. All of a sudden, having all of that refreshed in your mind after you've probably just spent about the last few years hoping there's enough coke, quaaludes, and whiskey to just kind of wash it all away. Um. But as it stands, yeah, it's like you said, it's a tight script, very little wasted motion. Um, you will not find too many, if any, glaring pacing issues with this movie. Um, it gets where it needs to go exactly when it needs to get there in just enough time. It doesn't linger on jokes too long. Um, the confrontation on the highway, fucking fantastic. Arguably one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> Put the Especially... fag makeup on me. Oh, it's not the fag makeup. <laughs> you know, and again, that, that's, that's the funny thing. I can't even really hate the slurs mm-hmm. because product of its time. Yeah, I mean, well, like, I, 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 I was yeah. properly chastened after our conversation about Christine, so... You know, like I, I don't feel uncomfortable now, like sharing that. I think that that scene is hilarious, and obvious, and it, but it's said by people you're supposed to be cheering that got beat up. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. This, well, is, I mean, this is this is in no way celebrating, like, you know, slurring homosexuals. Like the guys yeah, that do would get yeah. the crap beat out of him. Yeah, and you know, our our heroes engage in it a little bit, but by the end of the movie, you know. They've kind of they've kind of learned their lesson maybe maybe a little, mm-hmm. and they're and they're also not quite so 
overt about it as the as the jocks are um i i didn't live through the 70s mm-hmm. but it strikes me as kind of in many regards as authentic a portrait as possible of everything from uh the religious right extremism Mm. And everything that I've been made to understand about the hatred of heavy metal. I mean, if this, the satanic panic, I think really kicked off in the eighties, I think. Yeah. So this would have been probably just a few years prior to all that really gather, really gathering steam. But it's my understanding that kiss was kind of one of those bands where, the first bricks of that were really were really laid. Yeah. Especially when it came to the stigma against heavy metal. Um, they were they were kind of the easiest, most bombastic target. But it's not just Kiss's music that really that really shines here. Um, you've got so many titans of 70s metal that are juxtaposed so well against the use of instrumental music by like the carpenters mm-hmm. and and the, you know the hey the heyday of disco of disco and funk to kind of juxtapose mystery against their against their kind of, their kind of affluent suburban tormentors mm-hmm. um and it's it's such a perfect perfect usage of instrumental music um the the predicaments they all go through to try and get tickets to try to get in, to get into the show they were all interesting i thought that none of them fell flat whatsoever um i absolutely loved um the machiavellian little shit and his uh and his mountain of an older brother and their and their gang Chongo. um yeah chong <laughs> <laughs> scamming trip mm. out of um, a heroically 150 bucks um hawk isn't shown to be to be some um turns out some legendary under the radar uber stud um he got in fact he kind of gets lovingly jabbed for for going off half cocked um but it's in kind of kind of a loving way by Mm. uh by by miss finch um and we don't it kind of just ends at just the right time. It doesn't overstay it doesn't overstay its welcome. You get the happy moment, he catches Peter Chris's drumstick. Um he has emphatically told his uh, told his mother off who let me tell you something, if she's if she's I, I I can't even call her a caricature. She's not. Nor can I say she was really a product a product of its time, because if you think that if you think that it's not that bad with some of these with some of these people now, please, I invite you visit scenic West Plains, Missouri. <laughs> I'll leave the li- I'll leave the light on for for you. And by light, I mean I I mean I will light up "Told You So" and Christmas lights. Um, it just it doesn't surprise me that it didn't do well at the box office. But I can't say that doesn't disappoint me as well. Yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> anything else about Detroit Rock City before we get out of here? See it. 
by all means see it. Um, it is right up there. And in fact, I I will ask you this. Um, yeah. I'll ask you first. What is your Rushmore of music movies like Detroit Rock City? Not so much Ooh. musicals, not so much rock operas, but movies that are really that are really about kind of that collision of music and culture. I mean, are we talking about like the kind of like almost famous movie, or are we talking like almost famous biopics? Like um, I would Rhapsody? say, I would say no biopics because that's a little okay. too easy. Yeah, that's that's what I was asking. Yeah. Gosh, um, I'd really have to. I'd really have to go back and look. Like, I almost need to like look at a list and like be reminded of what what it is you might be talking about. Um, shoot, shoot some, shoot some at me and let's, let's play yes, no. Okay. Um, empire records. Gosh, I saw it once many, many years ago. I don't remember loving it. Okay. I know, uh, I know with kids, you're, I know with kids, your age and who grew up with that movie, it, it like speaks to your soul or whatever. I think, I think I was out of the window of, of relevancy. We do, we do keep Rex Manning day. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. I heard, I heard that re- my wife and her. Uh, boyfriend apparently recently watched um uh empire records and uh they they and they're closer in age than i am to her um it's probably why we don't get along very well anymore but um she uh they they were talking to me about like the relevance in their lives of empire records and i'm like Mm. it has no resonance for me at all okay um high fidelity okay um Okay, you and I talked about that. I love High Fidelity. I think I think that was the one that drove you crazy, but I actually really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the John Cusack character. Yes, but believe it or not, when it comes to talking about love of music and its impact on lives, mm-hmm. I would still grudgingly put that on my Rushmore. Okay. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I, I think High Fidelity is great. Mm-hmm. And hey, Jack Black. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, like better my- roles. Like, like mine, for example, I think would be probably High Fidelity, mm-hmm. uh, Detroit Rock City would yep. now absolutely be up there, uh, Empire Records, and it's SLC Punk. Haven't seen that one. Oh, you I haven't can, see that one? I, I did see that one. I and that one I remember. Like, I love the idea of you. Like, you have you know, this Mormon, this big Mormon city and this like burgeoning punk scene and, you know, the, the hmm. confluence and uh, of ideas and, and cultures. I, I, I always enjoyed, uh, that's another Matthew Lillard movie. Uh, I also mm-hmm. say, gosh, movies in the 90s, man, in the early 2000s. Um, and if I had to put one more in there, mm-hmm. and yes, I will throw this in because... Um, even though I said no musicals, I think this is one that's a really good one for, to kind of spark anyone's love of this form of music. I got to put the Blues Brothers on there. Da, 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 da. You know, um, it's not I a have. music movie. It's a it's a science fiction fantasy <laughs> update of an of a of an um, old you know of an old uh, science fiction real movie real real television show, uh, Flash Gordon. But like the music in Flash Gordon is such an integral part of that movie, and it's all done by Queen, and it's one of my favorite. It's one of my yeah. favorite movies of all time. You know, so yeah, if I had, so true. if I if I could pick that one, that's definitely up on my Rushmore. 
Um, I'll tell you what comes close on mine. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you may laugh when you hear this, but I mean this wholeheartedly, not a trace of irony. Mm-hmm. Eight Mile. Yeah, Eight Mile's good. Um, yeah. It's, it's a shame. I, you said Eight Mile, and the first thing I thought of was um, the NWA movie, Straight Outta Compton, but, you know, biopic. Mm. Um, uh, biopic. How about CB4? Yeah. Remember that one? Oh, God, CB4. CB4 is sweat of my balls. It's so funny. Uh, you know what? Actually, you, you mentioned CB4, and you just mm. reminded me of another one. And in fact, I'm going to bump Empire Records. Spinal Tap. Yeah, Spinal Tap's not bad. If you want to go in the other direction, uh, more like of the folky stuff, um, uh, A Mighty Wind. I knew you were going to say A Mighty Wind. Yeah, Mighty Wind's I good. That's good stuff. Uh, that's why the same people who did Spinal Tap. So, all right. I think uh, that wraps our review of Studio yep. 666 and HD in the Pick of Destiny in Detroit Rock City. And uh, this is it for Sean and I for a while. Um, mm-hmm. I'm cutting back to two days a week, uh, just, despite the utter turmoil my social life is in currently. I still need to not do this four and five days a week anymore. So I'm cutting to two days and, you know, I'm sticking with Damn You Hollywood and then one other show. Uh, so just a lot of stuff had to be cut away. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. after a time, I'm not doing any more television reviews, uh, especially if God, that last Halo one really broke me. Um, really? So I'm not, I'm not doing that. And then, you know, I'm sticking with the DMU. In fact, I've even retooled the DMU Hollywood format to where I'm, I'm trying to not even double up movies anymore. Um, and just, you know, so even if it's a streamer, I don't know if you know this about Robert and I, but we can talk for two hours <laughs> i've always loved that about you too yeah we have we have good rapport um so uh i don't feel the need to double up movies anymore nor do i need to, nor if there's no money to talk about i don't really care like robert and i can still knock an hour and a half just on the craft review and then rotten tomatoes fuck we could do an hour of rotten tomatoes me and him <laughs> just sitting there reading reading quotes to each other so and and having aneurysms as, as we like to do so i um uh, so I'm sticking with Damn You Hollywood, and but that, but again, so the, the whole idea of like doing triple features and stuff isn't really as relevant to me anymore. Um, but however, Sean and I are going to do another Pride Month next year. I, we haven't mapped out, mm-hmm. and we're, we're going to try to get Sean on some other shows. And uh, we've got the Whiskey Rebellions coming back um, later in the year, like I think October. So that'll always have a perpetual open fourth chair, which Sean can occupy when he has time. Uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom. Okay, now, 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 wait. Uh, remind me, what was the, the format of the Whiskey Rebellion? Wasn't that your news and current events show? Yeah. Um, I mean, we were sort of like reacting to things and like cracking wise about it. So it wasn't like super serious. But, um, but uh, you know, there's been there's been talks about having like an, like an open format, just discussion show. So obviously we have to have stuff to talk about. So yeah, there'll be articles, but it won't necessarily strictly be reaction to like hard news that kind of a thing i mean like whatever people want to talk about hmm. um and i know jesse has been wanting to do some more video content like rea- video reaction stuff so things like um like reacting to old commercials is something that he wanted to do oh and, like, i could have some fun with that yeah so just kind of providing a, a sandbox for people to play in where we're not tried to strictly talk okay. about one thing um so that sort of stuff and then the and then the metal hammer of doom um, is also changing where uh, we're, where we've having so much fun with the Metal Hammer of Doom Extra that um, I'm just kind of going to make that the new format. So it's going to be 
an hour, three videos, one picked a piece by myself, Robert Cooper and Jesse, and just kind of doing talking bullshit in between, like we've been doing on the Metal Hammer of Doom Extra. And that will always, you know, people want to jump on that, they can, because now they don't have to have heard the album that we're reviewing. You know, it could just be, hey, I have nothing to do tonight, and you guys are fun, I'll come on and talk to you. So, so that's my way of saying, hey, you have two opportunities to jump on in the fourth chair, if you want, for two different yes. open format shows that I'm going to be trying to do uh, one each month. So there's that. So this is all coming out later, later this year and then next year. It'll be more of that. So, um, what what, that, what you're basically what you're basically saying is, I can momentarily kind of put my days as a movie critic to rest <laughs> for a while, for a while, unless you jump on Damn You Hollywood. So, <laughs> um, you never know. Uh, so tomorrow we are reviewing Where the Crawdad Sings, and then Thursday we're reviewing Ms. Marvel. And then I'm going on vacation, um, uh, which is me watching my wife talk to all of her boyfriends on her phone for a week. Uh, while we try to have a family vacation. So I'm really looking forward to that. But I am really looking forward to, in all actuality, I am very, very much looking forward to going to see Rage Against the Machine with Jesse in Cleveland. Yes. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so while I'm gone, uh, we will be doing re-airs of uh, the four-part documentary that was on Netflix called Cooked, uh, the two-part Long Road to Ruin we did on the Highlander series, first two movies, second two movies, um, the Damn You Hollywood we did for Pan, um, and then the four-part Harry Potter Long Road to Ruin that we did that Alexis was on three of the four of those episodes way back in the day. And then Prey comes out the week of August 5th, so we'll have the Long Road to Ruin for the two Predator movies on the 31st, and then the On Trial for the Predators, plural, movie on August 1st, and then we're back live again for DC League of Super Pets on august 2nd that's what i got going on what do you got going on well a few things first off a little update on my upcoming new podcast the 530 train uh it's going to be a show where as the name kind of sneakily implies i pick something that i really enjoy could be any number of things could be a hobby could be music movies books games anything and within the span of 30 minutes, uh, span a good brisk cardio workout, I give you five informative, thoughtful reasons why I think you should check it out. It's not a review show. It is a recommendation show. I want it to be something positive, something fairly happy, something that you can look forward to listening to. And even give you some give you some ideas to broaden your horizons or help you expand on something else that you've checked out recently. I've got my first few episodes scripted. I just need to record them to hopefully debut sometime in late August. And just to let you know, we are going to be starting with one of my favorite video games of all time. And quite frankly, an almost unparalleled atmospheric horror classic, Bioshock. So look forward to that sometime in late August. In the meantime, yeah, as I always say, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, at Comer Codex. But the really big news is I'm now back to streaming. It's official. Last week, I actually put together several streams in a row. It feels absolutely wonderful. You can see right there in my updated tag, instead of my Twitter handles, I've given you my, I've given you my Twitch uh, the upcoming schedule for this week, that is to say the week of July 18th, 
Wednesday night, I'm going to break with tradition and I'm going to do start a blind playthrough on stream. It's going to be my first time dipping into the Dragon Age franchise with Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, that's going to be my new story-based stream for a little bit, and it's going to be alternating with my competitive gaming streams. I'm getting back into PvP, back into ranked play very soon. But in the meantime, I've got some rust I need to knock off, and I'm going to do it while anybody who wants to can come into my chat and remind me just how much I suck. So, uh, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, Dragon Age Inquisition. Thursday night, 7 o'clock, Central Time. Um, join me for some Overwatch. Friday night, we are back to Dragon Age at 7 Central. And Saturday at a special time from noon until probably about 3 p.m. or so, it's going to be another fairly short Overwatch stream. And again, if you want to keep up on when I'm going to be streaming, a couple ways to do that. Number one, I almost always post updates to Twitter and Instagram fairly shortly before I go live, but... My personal favorite way is you can go directly to my Twitch channel, hit the follow button, turn notifications on. If you're really feeling generous, you can go ahead and subscribe. If you have a, a, a Prime Gaming free complimentary monthly sub that's been burning a hole in your pocket, I'll take it off your hands for you. Please. Sure. Please do. I'm saving up for a laptop. All righty. All right, folks. Well, thank you for joining us here on Triple Feature this evening. Uh, for Sean Comer, you're not. I'm Mark Radledge. Be well, be safe, and behave.